And now a moment to introduce you to Independent Age, one of our charity partners here on Honestly. Throughout the pandemic, Independent Age has been looking out for older people, ensuring they don't get lonely. They've helped many stay in touch with their families and community online by providing electronic devices and training in how to use the ones they have. It's looking like it's going to be an unusual Christmas for all of us this year. And sadly, for thousands of old people who are particularly at risk, it means being unable to spend it with family. A donation of £10 from you to Independent Age will go towards devices and training to keep them connected. Head to independentage.org forward slash loneliness to find out more and donate. Hi, I'm Clemmie Telford and it's time to get open and get honest. Each week, I interview a guest about a topic that we, as a society, often shy away from. From sex lives to salaries, life and death, religion and real bodies, no subject is off the table. Welcome to Honestly, the podcast. Today I'm joined by Sophia Parker to talk about child poverty. She founded Little Village, the London-based charity that describes itself much like a food bank, but for clothes, toys and equipment for babies and children under five. As COVID has really pushed poorer families into poverty, the team have been working around the clock to support families that cannot afford the basic items every child deserves. We talk about the detrimental effect COVID in 2020 has had on poorer families, but also how the system needs to fundamentally change in order to make things better. So... Here she is. Before we get deeply into it, I'd like to start with some quick fire rounds. So I'm going to ask you those first of all. On a scale of one to ten, how confident are you? How confident am I? Oh, seven? It's a solid answer, seven, isn't it? Solid seven, I'd say. Yeah. Solid seven. <laughs> this is a pertinent one for this stage in our lives. On a scale of one to ten, how patient are you? Oh, man, I, I'm really, really really impatient and it's getting worse so I'm gonna have to score myself low there one I just how do people be patient I honestly don't know I I just yeah I mean I've always been impatient I'm like I'm like the person that like presses all the buttons really like impatiently when I'm waiting for something to happen and unfortunately it's something my kids have inherited my partner's a lot more chilled and he's just like when me or my kids are going crazy waiting for something he's like guys just relax you know what momentarily in the beginning of, of 2020 when we were in the like extreme lockdown not having to get anywhere there were some tension points taken out of the day not having to get kids shoes or not having to get stuff I think our neighbours thanked us for that <laughs> like at the end of the daily morning shout <laughs> yeah in fact because we've all got to know our neighbours a bit better it transpires that the people four houses down three yeah. can hear every word in our garden You're like, oh no <laughs> what about the houses at two three four in between oh wow oh. sorry about that we're, we've got loud voices we do a lot of shouting we live in a terrace house in london this is like this is the problem on a scale of one to ten how funny are you oh my god i'm not sure i'm that funny you know am i funny no i wouldn't say that was one of my one Trace. of my superpowers. <laughs> Can't have everyone going around being funny. No, I do. I do love funny women, but yeah, I'm not sure yeah. it, that's me. Fine, go oh, good for you for owning it. Favorite color? Green, forest green. Love it. Do you live in London? Yeah, yeah. I live in Tooting, so there's not much forest green around um, here. I've, I'm desperate to get in a massive amount of nature. Oh my god, I know, I know. <sighs> Sometime soon. Some woods, some trees. What star sign are you? Sagittarius. 
Are you? Yeah. So I like adventure. I've got strong opinions. And definitely impatient. And definitely impatient. I've got a Sagittarius middle child. He's a force. He's a force. I've got uh, three kids and two of them are also December babies. So there's three of us, all three girls in the house are December babies. It's pretty intense. So yeah. what, have you, what have you got in terms of children? Two girls and a boy. In that, in that order? No, so a boy and then a girl and then a girl. Yeah, but the three December birthdays. <sighs> yeah, actually mine are November, January and February and yeah, it's very right. it's, it's an expensive and stressful period. Yeah. The problem with having birthdays at that time of year is you can never do a birthday in a park. No, you've always got to hire somewhere. Yeah, and actually, my my youngest was born on Christmas Day, so wow. that's a whole new level of intense. But she's she's turning five this year, and I think she's just beginning to realise that this might be a bit unfair. Great. Because, yeah, she's like, but it's my birthday, not other people's Christmases. And I'm like, well, that's really, really tough. Yeah, we've got away with it so far. But I think, yeah, we're going to need to think differently about it this year. Yeah. What do you wish you'd learned sooner? Oh, that is a big question. Go with your gut feeling. Um, I wish I'd learned that pleasing people isn't the right way to prioritise your life. It takes a long time to realise that, though, doesn't it? does. It really does. I wish actually lots of women I know, I wish we'd all realised it a bit sooner and mm. like got comfortable with our power, really, a bit earlier. I'm really working on trying to do that in myself. Yeah. We've all got something to learn from these two-year-olds, right? Yeah, we have. <laughs> we just have. so sure. And when they're able to say what it is that they want, and to say it and not worry about the consequences mm. of saying it, like not, that is a big lesson. Yeah, I think so much of parenting is about keeping the good stuff in them rather than having to teach it to them. Well, on the topic of children, and the reason I have you here today is to talk about this extremely heavy going subject. And it's hard not to delve into this world without well, for me, just feeling huge compassion and empathy, and especially when you have your own children. And the topic is child poverty. So tell me a bit about who you are and about Little Village and how and why it started. Okay, so I'm Sophia. I'm a mum. I live in southwest London, but my heart is in southeast London where I grew up. And yeah, it's about five years ago now that I, so I just had my last baby and I knew it was it was our last yeah. baby. I was definitely not planning anymore after number three. And, and really like was starting to think about how I could shift some of this baby gear on from our house, which seems to just be sort of bursting at the seams with, you know, baby grows and kit and stuff that they're all growing out of. And looking around, it was really clear to me, there was nowhere I could give that stuff to a shop or whatever, where other families in my area who might be struggling would benefit from it. I basically wanted to give it to other families, other local families, and I, mm-hmm. I couldn't work out where I doing it. So you can give it to charity shop, but you don't know where it goes. You don't know yeah. like who goes. Most of the people that shop in the charity shops are middle-class mums like me, and that didn't feel like where I wanted that stuff to go. And I was chatting to you know lots of my mum friends, as you do, about what if we created something like a place where you could donate your stuff and it would go out to other local families. That was the sort of the germ of the idea, I guess. And mm-hmm. I was talking about it a lot because I do like talking about ideas quite a lot with people. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the people I was chatting to is a social worker, a friend of mine, and she called me up one day and she said, oh, look, you know that idea you've got? Well, I've got this mum. She's got a toddler and a newborn and they've just had a fire in their flat. They've lost everything. Can you help? And I was like, 
yeah, sure. <laughs> Thinking, oh, I don't know what to do here. But mm. basically, what, from there, I put out a message on social media saying, anyone in the area, this is the situation. Would anyone like to donate? And honestly, Clemmie, like it was completely mm. mind-blowing. I still feel quite emotional thinking about it. We must have got like four times what that family needed within 24 hours, stuff just starting to turn up at my door. And I've got to say, from that point, Little Village kind of launched itself. Mm. It felt like it really tapped into something that's important to lots of us. This idea that when you've got your own kids, the sort of solidarity you have with other parents is mm. really strong, right? And the thought of what it feels like to raise your kids when you are really struggling to afford the basics you want to help each other don't you Mm -hmm. and so really Little Village came out of that idea that actually what we needed to do was make it really easy for families to help each other so you know five years on we've got three sites across London now but we're supporting families from across the whole of London we supported 3,000 kids last year. We're on track to support about 6,500 this year. And we do that by collecting up donations from local families, really good quality stuff, and gifting it back out to other local families that need it. It's a very simple idea, really. It's just community, isn't it? It's community. But I guess the way we do it is really important. So we do it, we don't do it in a sort of, here's some some scraps, you know, here's a jumble sale for you. So we talk Mm. about it being a gift from one family to another. And that's really, really at the heart of everything we do. So one of our values is love. And one of them is solidarity. And those things are so important. That idea that actually, this is something that you want to give to another family to enable that parent to give their child the best possible start in life. Because frankly, every parent wants that for their kids. And so from that point, I guess you then start to understand the reality of what child poverty looks like. How many children in the UK, as far as you know, are living in poverty? And what does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately, a shockingly high number of kids are living in poverty. So 4.2 million kids are in poverty at the moment, which is quite a hard figure to accept. And I think a lot of people, when they come, when they come into Little Village, we're obviously, we have, we've had to close our doors at the moment, but we're still supporting families. But when they do come into Little Village, one of the things they say is, I had no idea it's such an issue. Mm. But yeah, 4.2 million kids. And the problem is, it's going up. <laughs> it's going in the wrong direction. So mm. if you look at government figures, but also like the projections by some of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and other people like that, they are all projecting an increase in child poverty between now and 2025. Where's the line between poorer and poverty? Is there specific markers for the poverty line? Yeah, you've, yeah. in the world of like policy geeks, kind of is it absolute poverty? Is it relative poverty? Is it social deprivation? But basically what it means is it's really, really hard to make ends meet with the basics. So for families with kids, it will mean that they are struggling to manage to pay rent, pay electricity, pay for food and pay for nappies. The money does not add up. And that is kind of what poverty looks like. And I think you can look at it in lots of different ways. It looks like that. So it's about kind of lack of money to pay for things we would see as basic essentials. But it's also for kids about missing out on really important experiences. So things like not being able to have a friend round to play or things like not being able to afford to go on school trips. And then for the parents, it's also feelings like a lot of the feelings we see in the parents that come to visit us at, at Little Village is that, you know, p- people are really ashamed mm. and angry that they're in this situation. They didn't want to be in this situation. No one wants to be in this situation. No. But there is sort of shame and defensiveness, partly because we live in a society which is really judgmental about yes. this stuff as well. 
that's the layer on top of it. Actually, I asked the good people of Instagram about how many of them would describe themselves as having lived in poverty growing up, and 11% had. And I, I mean, I asked them what that experience was like, and it was an overwhelming collection of things, but I wrote down a few. It showed up for this person as mum not eating dinner every day so that she could save money, of being constantly cold because there's no heating, as something that continues to impact me even though we're no longer in poverty. I don't remember much about it apart from someone leaving an envelope of money on our doorstep on Christmas Day, an ongoing feeling of shame, being bullied for living in a council estate. And then the opposite of that, I lived on an estate so all of my friends were in the same boat. So this person is saying that in some ways they felt fortunate for that because they didn't feel different. Sharing a bedroom with my siblings and having no personal space. And a lot of people also saying that they didn't really realise and it's only actually once they became parents themselves they begin to reflect on the behaviour. I'm projecting because it's not my experience but you know what an all-consuming experience parenting is without the unbelievable pressure of this on top of it. Yeah. Totally. And those things you've just described are so reflected in the stories and accounts we have from parents who visit us. There was one mum we supported a few weeks ago. So she's got three kids. She's living in her friend's sitting room. They're all sleeping on the sofa or the floor. There's no outdoor space. So that whole thing about lack of personal space, overcrowding, often the houses, particularly in London, are, you know, they're not great quality. They're damp, they're cramped. You've got kids walking around in shoes that are two sizes too small, mm. people rationing nappies, kids not having a safe place to sleep. So about 40% of the families we see don't have a safe place for their babies to sleep, which I just, you know, it breaks my heart, really. Yeah, yeah. and it's, I think, as we've touched on before, that reality, especially if you live in London, but no doubt across the country with stats like that, this isn't a problem that is happening elsewhere. There's yeah. is people on the bus with you, people in the post office queue and I think someone messaged me to say there's a real misunderstanding of how people present in the world so yes there is a a conversation about children not having the right things for school but sometimes the money mismanagement can show up so that someone may appear outwardly like they're holding it together but then going home and nobody's eating and that that can be an issue. Yeah, it's really interesting. So that for us really comes to life around buggies. So we give out buggies and people really, really care about the buggy they have. The reason that's important is because when you're in poverty, you know you're going to be judged. You know how poor people are treated. So you want to do everything you can to make sure you present yourself as someone who isn't in that situation. Like it is totally understandable and totally yeah. makes sense why people want to make sure that they actually, yeah, they, they do have the right buggy or like we have one mum who um, she's beautifully dressed and she came into us one day, she'd been at the housing association trying to sort out her housing and they'd said, oh, you don't look like you need our help. And she was just like, you can't, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, we've got a real problem in this country that we, we tend to assume that the reason people are poor is because somehow they didn't try hard enough or that they didn't work hard enough. Mm. But actually, what we know of all those kids, that those 4.2 million kids, two in three of them have got at least one parent in work. So it's really, really important that we understand the causes of poverty. It's not that people aren't working or sitting around or, you know, whatever, watching their big TVs or whatever the stereotype is. It's that actually, like, wages are too low, work is too insecure, 
benefits haven't kept up with the cost of living yeah. and, and prices have gone up. And like, you don't have to have a degree in maths to see that that is going to be a problem. It doesn't add up. Basically. It doesn't add up. Yeah, it doesn't it, add up. It's as simple as that. I previously did a um, episode of the podcast about universal credit, and that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, we're all closer to this than we think. And I'd like to just talk about the impact of COVID generally, because you wrote a great list from other all lists about it, that there are these different layers of the impact. So it, initially, there was the impact of the health side of it, because if you're living in these conditions, when we're meant to be social distancing, that isn't an option, is it? I mean, I think it's really important to be really clear that like, it's not like COVID is a new problem for families that were already struggling. Like things were already quite bad before coronavirus hit. And what what the lockdown and what the pandemic has done is made a bad situation much, much worse. And so, I mean, yeah, we've definitely seen a massive increase in request for support. As I said, we're, we're on track to support about double the number of kids this year that we did last year. And I think that's all COVID related, really. I think the impact is sort of, it's across a number of levels. Like, yeah, there's a kind of material impact in that people are losing jobs or reducing hours. We support a lot of families who are sort of in the gig economy. So they're doing, you know, zero hour contracts or they're doing self-employed sort of, you know, mobile beauty therapists, that kind of thing where actually they just can't work. So that is obviously having a big impact on their income and what they can afford. But then I think it's also really important to bear in mind that actually the lockdown has played out very differently for different people. Life on lockdown, when you're in a single room with no outdoor space, limited access to data, you know, that is a very, very different experience to someone who's got a big garden and, you know, blah, blah, all the rest. Unfortunately, I wish there was like a positive side to the story, but I really don't see how the kids that we support are not going to be worse off by the end of this crisis. When lockdown first happened at Little Village, we were like, right, okay, we've got to close our doors. We're going to redesign everything. We're going to move into sort of delivery so we can get stuff safely to families and like to their front doors. So we did all of that. And we initially were planning for like a big spike for three months. And what we've realized now is that we basically just have to plan for a general increase. The economic sort of after effects of the crisis are going to play out for much, much longer than the public health bit. Yeah, it's hard to put anything in place because we just don't know what it looks like. And I, yeah, I think the learning of this whole experience so far is that it, it just shines a light on the things that were already there, as you say. It just it just exposes them and makes them worse. So you must see people finding themselves in this situation for all sorts of reasons. There isn't a obvious path to poverty, I don't think. No, I don't think there is. And I think it's, yeah, really like what you said earlier, like you just don't know how your life might change. And all this stuff that we often see when people say, oh, you shouldn't have children if you can't afford them. It just makes me want to scream because you want to say, oh, yeah, sure. When I decided to have my kids, I had a crystal ball that would see 20 years into the future and tell me, you know, whether my relationship was going to survive, whether I was going to be victim of domestic abuse, you know, whether I was going to have a mental health breakdown. Like there's so many different reasons that you end up in a difficult situation. And I think what all those reasons share is there's sort of things that are very hard for you as an individual to control. Like it feels like you're being swept into this sort of tide of poverty. I think that is an experience that lots of people we've supported talk about, just this sense of like, I cannot I'm trying to work out how to get myself out of this situation. Mm. But it feels like things are conspiring to keep me there, whether it's, you know, the the quality of the jobs, 
or the lowness of the pay or the delays in the benefits or the crappy housing. It sort of feels like there's a lot of stuff that makes it very difficult to get out of once you're in it. Your support mainly looks like helping people in terms of giving them things that they need. Do you have a network that works beyond that to support them in a yeah, yeah in a different way? I sort of see us as like part of the first line of defence for families. <laughs> we do lots of work with the local food banks and refer families both ways. We have some of our volunteers are trained with citizens advice so that they sit in our sessions and are able to offer some advice to families that come in. And actually at the moment during lockdown, because obviously we can't have families coming in, we are calling about 200 families a week, checking in with them, seeing if there's other referrals we can make, whether there's other support we can offer So, yeah, we do lots of work to try and join up the sorts of things that will help get families out of that situation. But and and I mean, I guess the other thing that's really important for me is like, yeah, it's great to be a source of support for families who are in crisis. But really, the other thing we really need to think about is like, how do we get to the place where people don't need to come to organisations like ours in the first place? Right. Yes. Like, And how can we as a small grassroots charity use our platform as a force for change? So that actually we can stand up and say, this is not acceptable. Mm. And we actually, we need to take a lot more action to address child poverty and tackle it in the first place. Because at the moment, you know, one of the things I worry about all the time is, are we just being a sticking plaster to a broken system, right? And what's your sense on that? So we we don't have any government funding. We rely on the kindness of our communities and also on the the organisations that give us grants. And at the moment, there's a lot of focus on the kind of emergency response. And that's right. But I just, I guess I just also really feel we need to keep our eye on the bigger game. Like it's, this is about justice in the end. It's not right that inequality is going up. It's not right that child poverty is going up. So we need to keep on focusing on helping people to understand that child poverty is an issue and it is something that needs more focus. How would you begin to unpick it? Where are the places that that, that would begin to change? Yeah, I mean, so this is where I have to um, not get all ranty and political. No, it's all right. <laughs> it's good. It's just passion. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So, I mean, my, my I think I think my view would be we could start anywhere, and that would be better than what we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, taking no action on housing, taking no action on benefits, taking no action on low wages, like. Any one of those places would be a great place to start. And I guess, yeah, I mean, what it comes down to, as far as I can see and looking at the work that we do and the families that we're supporting and what they tell us, like there is something about sorting out that equation that's broken about money needed and money given either by wages or benefits. It doesn't work. So we need to find Mm. a way of getting more money into people's pockets. But I also think we just, as a society, we need to think about, we need to understand how important those first thousand days of children's lives are. All the evidence shows that like inequality between rich kids and poor kids is there in the very first day of school. So we've got to think about what we're doing before we get to that point. The problem with what's happened in this pandemic is it's it's thrown open the um, disparity in education. I've got friends whose children are in private education who have had live Zoom lessons for four months. My kids have had a middle kind of ground and there'll be kids who've not had anything close to, you know, the long tail of that yeah. is is terrifying. The impact of poverty is like here and now on kids' lives, like it is definitely like diminishing their lives right now but the reason it matters is 
not only because of that, but also because it casts such a long shadow into the future yeah. over employment outcomes, education outcomes, even life expectancy, right? <laughs> like you can expect to die earlier if you live in a poor area. But I'm wondering also how we stop shielding ourselves from it. We have really, really got to puncture our echo chambers. And again, this is what this year it is. It's like we have to step outside of it. And unfortunately, stepping outside of it is really uncomfortable because for every time that I sat there breastfeeding my child, there's a mother doing that in a very difficult situation. I mean, you know, all, all of us, I'm sure, are kind of doing our own work and reflections in the light of Black Lives Matter. But, you know, I feel like one of the things that, the last two months have been about certainly for me is is really stepping back and thinking what is our role as a grassroots organization Mm. in helping people to see some of these truths and some of it is about helping people to see what it means to be poor today and some of it is about revealing the sort of bias and negative stereotypes that go on around that I should also say some of it is about revealing the way that poverty and race intersect so one of the things that you know we need to talk about a lot more in society is the fact that black women are five times more likely to die through pregnancy and childbirth. Nearly half of the families we support are BAME background. 23% of them are white. So what we're seeing, especially in a place like London, is just how complicated but significant the relationship is between race and poverty. But, you know, I feel as a small organisation, we need to raise the profile of these issues and help people to understand what is going on around them. But when you really start looking, it's right there in plain sight. It's just we're not seeing it or choosing not to see it. I don't know, probably a combination of the two. I asked Instagram if there were any common misconceptions about their experience of poverty. So I thought I'd read those because I think they're interesting. Yeah, people have said that it's happening under your nose. People don't realise that the layer of judgment is an extra layer on top of this. They said, I was really aware of being judged on how poor we are. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah really tough. We had one mum that came in to see us and she was a wheelchair user. She came in with like a stack of papers, like, you know, really massive stack of papers. And um, she was like, oh, here's my proof. And I was like, what what do you mean? She's like, well, to show that I need to be here. And I was just like, put it away. (laughs) You've been referred. Come and have a cup of tea. But, you know, the fact she felt she needed to like justify being there. To jump through some hoops. Yeah. And you just think, my God, like these are the interactions that people are that are shaping people's lives, whether they go to the job centre or the housing office or whatever. As the person said on Instagram, that layer of judgment, I just think adds a whole new level of difficulty to what is already, you know, pretty tough circumstances. For me as a parent, I think there's an important role. How do I ensure that my children aren't perpetrators of that? Not that I think they would be. Sorry, kids. But you know what I mean? And that, that again, is an action that we can all take is to chip in on that. One of the things I love about Little Village is that it is really easy to involve the kids, although my kids were always saying, where's that toy? Have you taken it to your work, mum? I'm like, no, no, I haven't. I haven't. It's just lost. It's just lost. Although actually sometimes I have. But anyway, miraculously, they are the ones that have all got lost. <laughs> but I mean, it is really lovely to get it as a way of, of starting a conversation with kids. What toy shall I give to another child? Or like, what note shall I put in with it yeah. so that they've got a little note for them? Or Do you know what I mean? 
One of my kids, I don't know which one it was, went through a real phase of wanting to give away all their toys to their friends. That is a real natural instinct, isn't it? <laughs> and what are the key things that you would always be top of your list for people to donate? Oh, buggies, beds, often newborn clothes and then older clothes, particularly three to five year old boy clothes. We're always short of trousers. Oh, really? They go through their knees or something. I don't know. <laughs> they don't last. So those those things are pretty much always on our list. Unfortunately, because we're in London, storage is such a premium. We basically have a monthly wish list and then you can check that. But I would say, generally speaking, those things are almost always on our lists. And then the other stuff comes and goes. I mean, and then there's some sort of really obvious things when you think about it that people don't necessarily realise until we've chatted. If you're thinking about donating toys, don't bring us big stuff. A lot of the families that we support don't live in big places. They often also have to move around quite a lot. So we say small toys are just brilliant. Like we love a good small toy (laughs) and books always as well. And then if anyone's listening and they need help themselves, how would that experience look for them? Do I just turn up at one of your hubs or do I reach out to you? So at the moment, don't turn up to one of our hubs. No, We've had to closed, but we, as I said, we're operating a delivery service. What we have is a really simple referral process. So if you need help, the first thing you do is you go and have a chat to a professional. So that could be a midwife or a health visitor or a social worker or a teacher, anyone like that that you're in touch with. If you're not in touch with any of those people, you can get in touch with us directly, but and we'll try and help you find someone in your area. But you get in touch with them, say that you would like some support from Little Village, and then they will make the referral with you. And then what happens next is we call you, we have a chat about what you need, whether there's other support we can kind of signpost you to, and then we will deliver the stuff that you need. We don't have like complicated assessment criteria. It's not like if you went to your referral partner and said, I need some help and they'd be like, right, well, I need to ask you a whole series of questions. It's Um, not that. It's not that at all. It's literally, okay, right, well, let's just take a few of your details and then we'll go through what you need. So yeah, it's not it's not that. And it is an issue with shame. You know, I always say when we're doing our volunteer training, it's amazing, like the very fact that someone's got themselves to the door of Little Village and walked over the threshold is a really brave act because actually to say, yeah, I, I need help. It's really hard asking for help. If you just think about any time in your life and you've had to ask for help over something you really care about, like it's hard. You won't be judged or assessed when you come to see us or when you ask for support from us. But the referral system does just mean that we can like manage demands and make sure that we are able to support as many families as possible. Every bit in me wants to ask for some positive stories, but also what I don't want to do is tie a pretty ribbon on a horrendous situation. It's not about tying a pretty ribbon. It's about recognising that the women that we support are ferocious. They are Mm. so strong. They are doing everything they can to give their kids the start in life that they want. And they're having to fight damn hard for that. So I think there's some a really important message in that. But then I'm also just thinking, I just want to tell you about Amy, who is an amazing woman. I must be about two years ago now. She'd escaped a violent home. She had a baby under one arm and a bag under another. She just moved into a hostel. She came to get some support from us. And a few months later, came back and she said, I want to volunteer. I've got myself sorted out. I'm a bit more settled. I want to volunteer. So she started volunteering. We got chatting to her. And it turns out she's a qualified childcare worker. And we run a creche for some of our volunteering sessions so the parents can come and volunteer and put their kids in the creche. And um, she now is a member of our team running that. Amy is a woman 
I aspire to be like. She's the most amazing, warm, determined, driven, loving mum ever. And she is an incredible woman who's gone on a really difficult journey and is coming out the other side of it. It's against all the odds. It's in spite of the system, not because of it. But she's done it and she's amazing. When the going gets tough, people are made of tough stuff. They really are. Yeah. emotional especially mothers <laughs> Mothers, I mean my god like you discover new levels of like resourcefulness and determination don't you yeah and I think that is the thing about it uh, to like kind of go back to where our personal conversations have and that motherhood kind of burns you down to the ground but brings you back up fighting and it we're taught not to talk about the, the tricky stuff and to sit safely and in talking about how the weather is and we are doing ourselves such a disservice by doing that because we we don't learn and we don't hear the real stuff is there any insight you've got on on how to get better at having honest conversations as you say, you're only living half a life if you don't if you don't go for it. And I suppose so the thing that I always have in my mind, like if I know I've got to have an honest conversation, if I know I want to have an honest conversation, but I'm a bit scared, is I have one word I say to myself all the time, which is blurt. And it's so interesting because basically what it does, I don't know what it does, but for me anyway, when I say blurt, it's just like permission to say like what's in your gut. Stop editing yourself. It's always the weird stuff or the bit that was in my gut feeling that it might not it might just be me. It never is. It's all it's all that's the human bit, I think. The human bit, exactly. And you know, and if we didn't speak up, like all this stuff that's coming out about structural racism about patriarchy all this stuff we'd all just think it was just us we'd all just Mm. blame ourselves and say oh no that's just my situation it's not like that for anyone else by speaking out you realize that there's a a shared experience and something that actually is you know needs addressing more publicly so yeah honesty here's, here's the honest conversations okay one last question if you could have an honest conversation with one person who would it be and what would you say Oh, that is really tough. Wow. There are so many I'd like to have. Gotta go with your gut. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like to have an honest conversation with an ex of mine, actually. So he is now out. He's now gay. And oh. and it's always been a conversation where we've sort of gone there a little bit and then gone, no, 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 because we're good friends now. But there we go. It's on the record now. I'm going to have to have this conversation with you him. You have to. Oh, wow. But the imagined conversation in your head will be so much harder than the reality. I'm sure Hopefully. of it. Yeah, no, 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 it is. It will be. I know. Right, I'm Thank going to go and have that conversation. Thanks for that. That's all right. <laughs> Just throw that one out. You didn't see that coming. I think that's it. Thank you so much for being a brilliant guest and for opening my eyes to some stuff that I didn't know that I needed to see. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Honestly. If you found this episode on child poverty thought-provoking, I'd really recommend you check out this episode I recorded with the fantastic Alain de Botton on emotional well-being. It's full of insight and one that I have found really useful. I'd love to know your thoughts, so please do give me a rating or review and even better, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get each week's episode delivered straight to you.